Welcome to episode 16. Our guest today on the Good Old Podcast on the 2nd of June 2021 is Simon Dingle. Simon, are you based in London currently? Because you fly all over the world. <laughs> no, I'm in Cape Town. I've, oh, I've been in Cape, Cape Town, Town since uh, since 2019. I, I think like most of the world have, have been stuck in place for a very long time. <laughs> right. Simon, let me introduce Pedro. Pedro and I are partners in a company called 5,000 Miles. Our head office is in Lisbon, Portugal. We help connect businesses internationally. So we've established offices in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Lagos, Nigeria. And we've just opened up Spain. And I helped establish the company in Santon in Johannesburg. And uh, we enjoyed having in lockdown lovely conversations about macroeconomics and the world and things are changing. And we said, why not record it? So we just started in January. And it's quite interesting and then we said why don't we invite guests over to be part of our conversations and uh, from a hobby uh, this has just uh, really taken off so we're really uh, happy to have you on board and we wanted to know more about yourself your background and uh, let me give a quick introduction Simon loves running companies talking on conferences Simon if I'm correct you love video games and podcast and you've helped Establish companies or be instrumental in companies like Luno, uh, 22.7, Curve, Lettuce. Take us through all of it. But our uh, link to you was through Luno, where, you know, that's how we got to Bitcoin. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, so I was on the, the founding team at Luno back when it was still called Bitex. Um, and uh, I actually I actually left the company before it rebranded to Luno. Um, but before then, my background's actually in in broadcasting and media. Um, the f- I spent the first part of my career on radio and as a journalist, writing columns for magazines, etc. Um, I transitioned into fintech around 2009, 10, um, and that was about the time that the Bitcoin white paper first started circulating, and um, I read it for the first time in 2010. Wow. Um, I must admit, didn't quite understand it the first time around, uh, but in 2011, became really captivated by it um, and what was happening in, in fintech more generally. Um, and so the, the second chapter of my career has been, has been very focused on the fintech world. Um, you mentioned some of the companies I was involved with, 22.7, Luno, uh, Curve, not to be confused with the DeFi um organization called curve um this is a, a different uh curve that runs out of uh london um and our product is a smart credit card uh and then started my own companies uh, about three and a half years ago um under the umbrella of invest capital and lettuce is one of those companies Venox is another um we've got some other projects developing around stablecoin and just generally having fun in the world of crypto mm-hmm. <laughs> how did you found the the white paper in 2010 I actually had a friend of mine who told me about it. Um, we uh, it was actually at a debate between a gold bug and uh, another economist who didn't think that the thesis for gold was that spectacular. And it was a very small group. And a friend of mine, Justin Spratt, actually asked me to this debate. Um, and it was him who said to me, "Have you heard of this thing called Bitcoin?" And I hadn't heard of it, um, but went and did some googling after the the event, and and that led me to the white paper on uh, Bitcoin.org. I think it was originally. Mm-hmm. What was the feeling back then about about the white paper and Bitcoin? The general reaction to it, because no no one knew about it, I guess. Most yeah, it was it. it was cypherpunks generally who knew about it. Um, 
you know, it, it had a, a small community of, of followers by that point. Uh, the first transaction, of course, on, on the Bitcoin mainnet, mainnet happened in 2009 between Satoshi Nakamoto and Hal Finney. Um, by 2010, you think, I think both of them are the same person or not? <laughs> Excuse me? Both of them are the same person or not? Alfini and, 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 and Satoshi? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Halfini contributed to a lot of the work that's attributed to um, the Satoshi Nakamoto project. Um, but I think there were other characters that, mm -hmm. um, okay. that, that were more involved in, in, in at least the, the origin story for, for uh, Satoshi. And I think, I think Dave Kleiman was quite instrumental there. Halfini certainly himself. Um, Dave Kleimi. Yeah, Dave Kleimi. Dave Kleiman, yeah. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, him and Hal Finney uh, both passed away within, I think, a year and a half of each other um, from very similar um, uh, conditions. So neither of them are here to confirm or deny the story. But I think, you know, maybe we'll get into it later. I think that's part of what uh, makes Bitcoin so powerful as a narrative yes. um, is the fact that it has... Uh, Runs um, independent. Kind of, yeah. It has a pseudonymous founder that really uh, can't be cancelled online can't die in a car accident you you kind of need that mythical deity uh to drive any movement in the early days but that's a whole different story maybe clive can search this dave so we can see his face <laughs> <laughs> okay so so at the time you, you did you reject it the concept how, how was your your reaction to it did you embrace it you reject it it was something that irrelevant to I immediately loved the idea because I think it was something that I'd always thought was inevitable um, you know just just as somebody who's always been fanatical about computer science and more broadly information science um, I kind of think that a native online currency was something a, a lot of us thought was inevitable and so the idea just immediately made sense to me it okay. was um, You know, I suppose analogous to, to when you have your first child, you're like, oh, of course, it's you. I was waiting for you and now you're here. You know, it was sort of, um, it was just such an obvious thing that was going to happen on the internet at some point. Um, you know, and, and we'd had, uh, we'd had uh, you know, economists, computer scientists predicting something like Bitcoin since the very early days of, um, of the internet. I think Milton Friedman most, most famously. Um, But, but to be honest, uh, you know, as I said earlier, on my first reading, I didn't really grasp exactly what it was that made Bitcoin so powerful from a monetary policy perspective more than a technology perspective, and also what this would birth in terms of the blockchain as a technology, um, which is an interesting discussion because, of course, the word blockchain doesn't appear in the Bitcoin white paper once. Mm. Satoshi Nakamoto originally didn't talk about the blockchain, yes. um, that whole you know, idea came later. But as with any new technology, we never really know where it's going, you know. Um, if you showed people the first iPhone and then explained to them what we'd be doing with these computers in our pockets, uh, what is it now? Mm -hmm. 12 years later. You know, I don't think anybody really, <laughs> really yeah, saw of the full extent of, of where this was going. <laughs> Do you think the, the, the narrative of gold 2.0 was already present in 2010 or was more a P2P? Because the white paper mentions a P2P payment system, yeah? Mm. More than a store of value gold 2.0. So yeah, it, Satoshi, it, never, mm. Satoshi never really talked about digital gold much. Yeah. He, he, you know, the, the original white paper, as you correctly said, referred to Bitcoin as peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. That's really 
That's the it. use case that it was designed for. Um, but I think that that anybody who was thinking about it and, and especially long term and from a strategic perspective knew that the the narrative would have to start with store of value because you know you 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 can't use anything as a medium of exchange before there's a perceived value in the system. So the the digital gold arc is is something that you know perhaps only in hindsight or perhaps because Satoshi had so much foresight that that needed to be the departure point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, that somehow uh, it, it looks like it because the the whole idea of the of the white paper and of Bitcoin was to react to 2008 uh, subprime crisis and. Uh, uh, let's say fiat uh, issuing uh, uh, boost that that followed it, uh, but when when I read the white paper, I, I I I thought it was so very well made that surprises me that was done. It, it seems like to to have thousands of hours of work to 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 do it, just because almost every word is precise. Doesn't look like it's me that opened the computer, write some ideas, sent to you. <laughs> Somehow, you know, uh, I would I would imagine you know twenty guys reviewing and and reviewing mm. again and fine tuning it. I don't know, but Mozart also did you know wonderful music alone. So maybe it's possible. Look, uh, I, no, nothing is built in isolation, and and of course, Bitcoin inherited and and built on a lot of um, technology that came before it. Um, so you could argue that the true father of, of Bitcoin was actually Adam Back, who's a British computer scientist who invented Hashcash. Um, and of course, Hashcash, if, if people haven't heard of it, uh, was a way for computers to attach electronic signatures to email. And the reason that, that Adam thought that this would be useful to the world is because of the spam problem that was just overloading email servers in the early days of email. Um, and he thought that if there was a cost associated to sending an email, even if it was a small cost, you would drive spam out of the system because mm. spam, you know, has a very low success rate. You need to send a million emails for everyone that somebody's stupid enough to interact with. So um, that's, that's really where that idea came from. But in developing Hashcash and using the SHA-256 algorithm to introduce electronic signatures to, to you know, ostensibly um, uh, electronic messages online, Adam inadvertently, you know, invented a currency for the internet. He, what he really did was, was he came up with a protocol for computers to prove that they had done something for the first time, mm -hmm. which is an interesting idea. Um, and that really was the the foundation that Bitcoin was built upon, you know, uh, a lot of the work in implementing SHA-256 and the idea of, of, of using private key cryptography to, to drive, you know, private public key cryptography to, to come up with a system like Hashcash, um, really, that was the groundwork that, that, that then paved the way, if you will, for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think I've, I read somewhere that there's been... 40 years before Bitcoin, the people have been experimenting with alternates. I mean, even, the, you know, presidents like Gaddafi and them were looking for alternates to the US dollar. So yeah. I know it's not anyway close to Bitcoin, but people have been searching for a long time for alternates to money that's not pegged to gold and, uh, you know, something that has some scarcity. 
Yes, I mean, you know, money hasn't been pegged for gold since the 70s, really. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, money in the Western world has been pegged to bullshit, if you'll pardon my French, for a very long time. Yeah. It hasn't, 100%. You know, it's been pegged to policy, basically, and, and the whims of, of, of bureaucrats. Um, so, but, but you're right. Uh, Bitcoin or something like it is something that the world has been calling for for a long time. And I think what makes it interesting to me is anthropologically, um, you know, Bitcoin is is incredible from a technological perspective. But if you take the technology out of it, really, what set, but sets Bitcoin aside from, uh, you know, other money and and even other cryptocurrencies is the narrative around it, the monetary policy, what it means to human beings that we can distribute consensus within the network, that there aren't trusted central authorities or third parties that we require for transactions. And, and one of the things I find fascinating in thinking about that is that takes us back to a very ancient form of, of doing money and trust. If you go back to early tribal societies, um, mm. you know, the trust in tribal societies was something that the tribe as a whole did. And monetary systems that emerged in those early days very much relied on the consensus of the group in order for them to function. <clears throat> there weren't central authorities necessarily that were verifying transactions in our early monetary systems, which, mm. by the way, we have, are as old as, as language just about. Um, I think a lot of people have this idea of the barter system, and that's what people did before money. The barter system doesn't work because um, there's a problem with concurrency, right? Uh, you might have uh, a fish you've caught today and you want to swap it for pumpkins, but the pumpkins have just been planted. They're only going <laughs> to be ripe four months later. So we've always had money. In some form, yeah. we've always had IOU notes. Yes. And the interesting thing about Bitcoin is it gives us a way to scale human trust in the way that ancient tribal societies conducted it, where we have consensus as a group about transactions and where value is stored. It takes us back to that ancient idea of trust and, and transactions and you know what that means, um, but it gives us the ability to scale it, which wasn't possible before. Mm -hmm. I think uh, in the Bitcoin standard... Uh Seyfedean describes it well with the rye stones on those islands and ownership of the rye stones, you know, this big, uh, yes. what, concrete, but rocks and that yeah. were circular and then the trading of beads and whatnot. I think, Simon, look, we've been talking, uh, Pedro and I, from last year about Bitcoin. So we've the, gone through the foundations. We've read certain parts of the conversations like uh, last week we had the MD from Binance of Africa on and uh, we want to talk about where is it going. Uh, I think what's interesting is the other cryptos that are out there, what's your opinion? But before uh, we go to all the cryptos, I still have questions about Bitcoin. That, uh, <laughs> that, yes, okay. yes, yes. Because it's a very interesting... Oh, there's so talk. much we need to discuss, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right down to NFTs and, uh, you know, virtual land and property like in Decentraland. Uh, mm. Metaverse, all stuff. So let's let's start, Pedro. <laughs> Where are we starting? So uh, because uh, I think that Simon has an advantage over us is that uh, he was very early and, and saw the concept very early. So at least to me, you know, it's it's a two-year-old concept. Yeah, it's very different from someone that found in 2011. So I think that uh, in a way, Simon witnessed the the cycles, the 2013 cycle, the 2017 cycle, uh, very close, and it's a topic that it's uh, relevant now. Yeah, because you know people try to understand where is Bitcoin going, and and maybe there are uh, answers that come from experience, basically. We can look at the charts, but it's different from someone that that uh, witnessed it evolve. Yeah, 
So I, I had this, this doubt, you know, how did it felt in 2013, the cycles, and then in 2017? Is it similar to what we are experiencing now? Uh, or is different uh, vibe, let's say? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, there's, I, I always think of that Bill Gates quote where he, he said, uh, we always overestimate the change that will happen in two years and underestimate the change that will happen in 10 It's a very overused quote, yeah. but um, I think in, in 2013, Bitcoin felt very imminent to me. <laughs> you know, I was like, it's happening now. People mm, are understanding yeah. it. Oh, that Adoption was it. is going to take yeah. off. Um, and of course, we were approaching the $1,000 mark then. And those of us who had been um, in Bitcoin since it was $1 were like, whoa, this, this is, is incredible. How could it possibly yeah. be worth $1,000 a coin? Of course, today it's closer to $40,000. But um, But it felt so imminent back mm. then. And then, of course, the big thing that I don't think I had fully understood was what the halving cycle meant mm. um, and how smart the, the algorithm governing the supply side of Bitcoin was yeah. um, and what would happen if you know, supply diminished but demand stayed constant and was growing. Obviously, mm. the price would go up ultimately, but it means that you have to have a correction first. And... I think that understanding that cycle in 2013 meant that in 2017, um, I went into it with an understanding that the price cannot go up forever. At some point, there will be a retrace. Um, but ultimately, the laws of supply and demand are kind of like rules of the universe. <laughs> They're very close to physical laws, you know. And yeah. at some point, we this is cyclic. The, the system is designed to be cyclic. Um, it also relies on a few philosophical things. So, so for example, I don't believe in efficient market hypothesis. Markets are not smart and they're not efficient. Okay, I had right? that question. I had that question. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, also, I also, you know, fully buy into the predictably rational Sash Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow, that school of behavioral economics. People are not rational. People are emotional. Mm. Um, you can give people all the data in the world, they will still act on their emotions. So, um, so, so all of those things feed into it as well. Um, But that said, I also don't believe that past performance is any indication of, of anything that will happen in the future. So the cycle in terms of the Bitcoin halving, and that might require some explanation, which we can get into or not. But that cycle predictably played out the way that people thought it would in 2013. It did it again in 2017. So far, it's doing exactly the same thing again in 2021. But that doesn't mean that what comes next is the same you know, cyclic pattern that we saw in 2017. This time could be different. There yes. might have been a fundamental change in the environment, in use cases, etc. that means that this time is different. However, I think all things being equal and the fact that Bitcoin is still so dominant in the, the cryptosphere um, and the fact that when Bitcoin tanks, everything else goes down with it, there hasn't been a decoupling really of the other cryptocurrencies in terms of value means that we're probably in for a similar cycle again. So you think you think that we are still in uh, you are still bullish, let's say, at this moment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you if you if you just track, so you guys have, have probably heard of the stock to flow cross asset mm -hmm. class model yes. of Plan B. I mean, <laughs> this went from being something only nerds were talking about yeah. four years ago to now CNBC and 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 Reuters yeah. are you know kind of uh, yeah. talking about it all over Twitter it. as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you if you if you bind to the hypothesis of of stock to flow, then 
we're only halfway through the bull cycle and this retrace is, you know, just a blip on the radar. <laughs> but again, this time could be different. And another thing I'm, I'm, I'm sort of super aware of is usually your best bet is trading against the news. Yeah. <laughs> and so in 2017, you know, the old adage that's attributed to Warren Buffett of be greedy when others are fearful yes. and fearful when others are greedy. You know, we saw that playing out in 2017 when everybody said the price is about to go up. It went down when everybody said, oh, we're at the bottom. Get out while you can. It went up. It's, you know, it, <laughs> so, so I'm a little bit wary. I'm a little bit skeptical because everybody thinks the price is going to go up now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? Do you think that um, because uh, at least in Portugal we have a saying that says something like this? I'm trying. It's a rough translation. That uh, at the first time everyone fa uh, falls for it. At the second time, uh, only the idiots uh, fall for it. At the third time, only those that want fall for it. This means that people learn. Yeah. And yeah. uh, and normally is in a not not in applicable to Bitcoin because in the context of something that is foolish, but uh, let's say the first cycle, let's say 2013, nobody was really in the cycle mindset, so okay, mm. it dropped. 2017, like you said, some of you already said, okay, I saw something similar. Let me you know uh, play differently. Now a lot of more people understand there is cycles. Um, I have this question: Is is there a moment in which, like, uh, you know, big players can start? Big players and small. Why big it, players start uh, like front running the model? You know, you know. I know it's going to crash, so I sell yeah. now, so it crashes earlier. Yeah. Yes. Or I know it's going to pump, so I I buy now. It pumps earlier, yeah. and suddenly it decouples from the model just because people learn to play the model. Yeah. I, I definitely think that is a, a big factor. That and, and self-fulfilling prophecy because… Exactly. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, you know technical analysis <laughs> on markets is like astrology. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's right because people make it happen <laughs> because they think they see a pattern. And so if the pattern tells me this happens next, I'm going to make that happen next. Yes. That said, I still think that unfortunately there's… In traditional centralized crypto markets, there's still a lot of manipulation that happens. Um, I think there's still a few big actors that are able to shift the market almost independently and certainly as a network. Um, and I think a lot of the, the big market shifts are still governed by those crypto whales. Um, so market manipulation is a very real factor too. But yes, you're right. There, there'll be a lot of front running the, the stock to flow model. Um, but there, there are other factors to think about that are quite interesting to me. And, and the one is that I see a lot more stickiness in, in use case now than I did in 2017. Okay. Like a lot of the hype in 2017 was driven by uh, the rise of the ICO and people speculating yes. on ICO tokens, you know, where you could buy into this fantastic idea that a company had developed and they'd written a white paper and they'd published their own token and they'd made sure it looks like a utility token so that the SEC doesn't come after them if they were smart. Um, and then they would do a fundraise, you know. Hmm. So it was kind of like uh, Seed Capital 2.0, <laughs> the token version. Yes. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of these ICO projects were just crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. And none of it really stuck. I mean, you know, I think the ICO model is exciting and innovative. I don't think it's going away. Hmm. I love the idea of DAOs. These are all valuable things. But in terms of, you know, widespread adoption, there was nothing really sticky that came out of the ICO craze. 
Um, this time around with uh, NFTs and even more so what's happening in DeFi, we're seeing a lot of more real value creation um, and a lot more stickiness and, uh, and concepts that I don't think are going to fade away overnight. You know, I really do think NFTs are here to stay. And I think they're offering so much value to artists and creatives and, uh, you know, potentially in the future record labels, etc. Uh, I don't see that idea going away. And so there is a lot that's different this time. Um, and one has to kind of think about that too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, did you, but just to finalize the, the the Bitcoin. So you feel that the regarding the let's say the emotions, you know, our, our emotions of people in the space is different now that was in the top of 2017. It was more hysterical in the topic in the top of the, of 2017. Yeah. Look, I think. I also, I also really don't like the hype part of the cycle. You know, I, um, I'm very much uh, prefer biddle to hodl. <laughs> like, well, I like them both. But you know, I, I, the nice thing about the crypto winter is you could, you felt like what you were building was more meaningful, um, that you were centered on on fundamental, you know, use cases, etc. Whereas now the use case for most people, if we're honest, is they want to see the number go up, right? Everybody's yeah. trying to get rich overnight. And yes, they like the idea of NFTs. They think DeFi could be disruptive. But at the end of the day, they're doing it because they think it's an opportunity to get really rich really quickly and they're speculating on price. And that to me is never a good reason for doing anything. That's you know? it. I agree. It's, I totally uh, agree. Yeah. 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 Um, so there, there, there's, kind of, there's kind of that as well. Um, but, but don't you see it different this time? Uh, okay. So the way I look at it, there's always a group of people that come in that are hearing it for the first time. Okay. So yeah. when I got in, in 2016, 2017, that was the first time I heard about it. Mm -hmm. And I invested, I would say, uh, without having the full knowledge of the white paper and understanding the Bitcoin standard and stuff like that. So you buy it out of FOMO and your friends tell you about it and you buy it to make money like a share, like a stock. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Then when you're out and then you go back and you start understanding it. Okay, so I bought it at a certain point, sold, sold at a certain time and understood it last year more when COVID hit. So in my opinion, when COVID hit in Jan, Feb last year to the world and money printing got done through the feds and stimulus checks, it had to have an effect on the monetary system. It had to have an effect on the global macroeconomics. That's how I saw it. And I, I, I started looking for the solutions and I turned to gold first. And then I went the next <laughs> month to Bitcoin. Okay. That was my journey. But then there's always every year, this group of people that hear it for the first time. And I feel that those are the people that always, uh, you know, the top 20% that bought, that didn't understand what they're buying and they always sell. That's number one. Number two, We've seen corporates or what would you say, hedge funds or listed companies coming in this time, which didn't happen previously in the first 10 years. So mm. people like Tesla, PayPal, MicroStrategy. Mm. Uh, the concern might be that when, uh, you know, two bigger companies or two, two, too many whales come in, they'd be able to manipulate the market uh, more. You know, yes. where it's not really solving, uh, you know, the, the beauty of this and being from South Africa, you can relate to this and being close to Zimbabwe and Venezuela and Lebanon, that Bitcoin really works to solve a problem for these people. 
Mm. Even for us, seeing the rand and the dollar slide over the last 20 years to the rand, yes. uh, I think that appeals to a lot of South Africans. In fact, you know, if you look at, I think more than 2% of South Africans hold Luno wallets right now. Okay. Mm. So it's, it's quite a phenomenal growth. Even if you type uh, Bitcoin on uh, Google Trends, South Africa is mm. in the top 10 for the last 10 years. Okay. That's right. So you've got, as I said, uh, this FOMO of people, you know, just uh, speculating. You've got these corporates and listed hedge funds. You know, people like Cathy uh, Woods and you've got uh, MicroStrategy. So this might be very different from the other two bull runs. That's definitely one of the trends that sets it apart is the movement of corporate balance sheets into, into this new asset class. Um, I do think it's a net positive, uh, and I do think it increases distribution of, of Bitcoin, for example. Um, you're right, it creates large pools of Bitcoin, but it's, uh, the, 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 the crazy thing to think about is, is, is how it's actually um, diluting pools for even bigger whales that were holding onto the stuff before, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So I think that, that whole kind of move of, of um, you know, corporate money and what will follow is family office money, et cetera, into this new asset class, that's another part of the trend that makes it different this time. Um, absolutely. Um, so I would add that to NFTs and DeFi. Um, you know, the idea of petrol, perpetual liquidity pools um, and markets and AMMs that run in a fundamentally different way. Um, I would certainly add that to to the list of things that means that this time is different. But you know, as you were alluding to, um, close to my heart is is financial inclusion and. I think ultimately this all builds the same narrative. You know, I love the idea that you can be a venture capitalist with $50 from your garage in Nigeria if you want to be, mm-hmm. and you can invest in a project on the other side that's of the so world interesting. that you yeah, care yeah. about. You know, it's, that's such a big idea. Um, and, and then you look at the world of remittances. Uh, I have developers in my team that are all over the world. Um, you know, a lot of them we pay in USDT. They don't have to worry about volatility because it's stable. It, it always equals $1. The payments oh, okay. clear in, in six minutes. They, the fees are a fraction of what I would have to pay the bank. And I've had transactions gone wry where we've literally had funds last for two months in the banking system before they were returned to us at a lower rate because yeah. the primary currency had appreciated to a certain extent. It's like when you use this stuff, it's just so obvious. And I do have clients in Zimbabwe who have told me that if this, in this case they, they happen to be farmers, they said if without Bitcoin, we wouldn't be living here anymore. It wouldn't be possible. Their lives kind of operate on, on cryptocurrency now. I think a lot of people in Venezuela will tell you a similar story. Mm. You know, we've seen similar things playing out in Cyprus, et cetera. And, and I think that's going to pick up steam as well. So the financial inclusion angle is, is, is a big thing to me. Um, the hedge against... Uh, inflation and volatility in fiat currencies is, is massive and then just you know taking the economic levers away just, from just, bureaucrats just, just and politicians that, just on that that that's sort of the way i look at this narrative and then i was just laughing with my wife the new in word for the month is narrative everyone's just using this word so i'll use the word too okay <laughs> the narrative here is the people in zim that are using it and the people in venezuela they're using it because it solves a, per, a problem uh, yes. Just stepping back, the the most successful or biggest companies in the world right now solved a problem. They might not have had, uh, you know, a good storefront or a good website mm-hmm. if it was Uber or Airbnb. Uh, you know, there was a saying I read, solve a fo- problem for 10 people, you make $10. Solve a problem yes. for a billion people, you make a billion dollars, right? So 
Airbnb, Uber, they solve problems. I'm saying Bitcoin solves a problem for a person in Venezuela, for a person in Zimbabwe. Mm. The people that are just buying it on speculation to make bucks, okay, they, they're, they're not solving a problem. And they, so you've got the speculators that are just trying to buy Bitcoin at 500,000 Rand, sell it at 600,000 Rand, make up some bucks. But the guy it's in relative, Zim, man, it depends on what huh? you consider to be a problem, right? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm saying the problem's getting bigger uh, uh, the, in the world. Like, let's say now Lebanon, yeah. the, way, the way the banks had frozen people's accounts. A few years mm. ago, it was in Greece. If you had money in the bank and it was frozen, you mm. were only allowed to take out $100, $200 a day. Yes. Right? People will turn to Bitcoin as a solution. Yeah. That, that's the one part which maybe the... The youngsters playing video games in America are not seeing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would add that if you can solve a problem for 10 people, there are at least 100 million people exactly like them with the same problem. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. I, I'd also say most problems are solved by accident. And that's the interesting thing about technology 100%. is it almost never mm. ends up being used for its uh, intended Super purpose. Yeah. So stated intent to me is is kind of irrelevant. And I think that's why... You know, what we're alluding to as well is the rise of the central bank, bank digital currency, which is another part of the story now. Um, yeah. and Take that us down the road, we listen to you. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but that's what frightens me is, as, you, as you've alluded to, we've seen central banks seizing control of private bank accounts. Um, we're now moving into a world where <clears throat> I think India is at the forefront of this, where, you know, you won't need a bank account anymore. You'll have a state account. You know, mm -hmm. the bank, the state will be your bank. Mm -hmm. um, They'll issue a central bank digital currency. They'll tell you it's better than Bitcoin. Um, of course, a central bank digital currency is the exact opposite of a cryptocurrency yes. because it's the most centralized form of money, whereas cryptocurrency's entire departure point is in decentralization. Um, and so there are a lot of people who are proponents of CBDCs and they're proponents for good reasons because they bind to the promise. You know, this is good for financial inclusion. It creates new efficiencies. It unlocks value in the economy. We can run welfare, you know, more efficiently and, 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 and more in a more focused way with CBDCs. And of course, all of those things are true on paper, but that's not how it's going to play out in reality. And so I, I'm always uh, frightened when people talk about giving uh, the state more control over my private life, you know, my, my financial world, etc. It just, it almost never leads to a good place. Yes. States have a terrible track record of betraying our trust. And the other big part of the argument for me is it's all fine while the right people are in charge. You know, yes. what if there had been a central bank digital currency in Germany in the 20s um, and, you know, when National Socialists took over in the 30s, they could now decide who's allowed to have a bank account and who isn't. You know, it's, 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 it's centralization. It's about control, right? Exactly. It's about control. It's not necessarily the, even about privacy. The, the, quest, it's about the, question, the question there is, for as I see it, a CBDC, if they launch it, it's just another crypto at the first stage. You know, we have 8,000 or 9,000 cryptos. Okay, give us another one or two, no problem. The question is, can they enforce it? Because mm. then it's a game changer. If it's just another project, you know, whoever wants to use it, go ahead. It's just another competing project, you know. But well, so yeah. it always starts with tax, right? Legal tender. It's firstly, legal tender is what you have to accept as repayment for debt. And it is what you are going to have to pay your tax taxes for, because from the state's perspective, tax is something you owe them. Um, so they can enforce its use in that dimension. 
I don't agree that it's necessarily just another cryptocurrency because as as I said before, it's the antithesis of a cryptocurrency. It's actually the opposite. Yeah, yeah. It technologically might look the same, but you know, you and I are both wearing a shirt. That doesn't mean we're the same kind of person. <laughs> it's, I, I really think it, it it's a very different thing. But but you did right. It's it's about the state's ability to enforce. Um, and I would venture that China is the only country that is capable of actually enforcing use of a CBDC or in stopping people from using alternative cryptocurrencies. Yeah. And even that's a big stretch, right? Because we've seen how ineffective the Great Firewall of China is when people really want to get through it, they can. Yes. I mean, when I was traveling in Beijing in 2010, I think it was, I was able to get through the firewall on my Kindle. Yeah. Just <laughs> with was, VPNs and whatnot, right? Yeah, there were always ways yeah. to, to get through it, and there always will be. Um, that said, I do think that if, if China decided nobody's allowed to access Bitcoin, they could probably get a long way to enforcing it. <laughs> yes. But outside Look, of that, no other country is going to control your access to these things. So how would they enforce use of a CBDC? Yeah, sure, you'll have to pay your taxes in it, just like you have to pay your tax in dollars or rand today. Just convert it on the day, yeah. But they can't stop you from using Bitcoin if you want to or using yeah. Ethereum. They would literally have to shut off the internet. And in the case of Bitcoin, even if they shut off the internet, we now have Bitcoin nodes in space that don't mm. require the internet in order for me yeah. to sink a block. So, you know, it's, uh, it's beyond the state to control and police and enforce, I think. And we've seen not exactly the same thing, but discussions that are germane, at least in the past, for example, with media piracy. You know, it very quickly in the early days of the internet became illegal everywhere in the world to download music and movies that you hadn't paid for. Who stopped doing it because of that? Mm-hmm. Maybe five people globally. You know, it's like, and yeah. and how could they enforce it? They couldn't. They could go after centralized companies like Napster and shut them down. But the moment BitTorrent was invented, yeah, 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 you know, all those torrents, <laughs> there's nobody to go after anymore. They can yeah. shut down the aggregators. They can try and shut down Pirate Bay. They still haven't succeeded, but they can't shut down BitTorrent itself. Mm-hmm. And to me. Bitcoin is even more intrinsic to the internet than a protocol like BitTorrent. You know, where do you go to shut it down? Who do you speak to? Nobody. You cannot arrest anybody. There's no Satoshi Nakamoto who you can pin to a post. You know, there's no there's no single data center you can take offline. You literally have to shut off the internet. Mm-hmm. Is this, and even I read somewhere that <laughs> this is like maybe the fifth time that China said they're banning Bitcoin. And, and well, they know, haven't was, said that. <laughs> huh? I just saw this thing on Twitter, right? So like yeah. that it's not the first time that people have said we're banning it or a country said they're banning it. And it's still in existence. It might go be volatile, but it's still in existence and it's carrying on. Mm. I don't see why anyone would want to ban, for example, Bitcoin or some other crypto, except maybe the privacy ones that, okay, I would have to think more. But if I think at Bitcoin, you know, it's not competing with with banknotes. It's not competing with, in a way, it's not competing because if I, if I want to pay something in a store, you know, fiat is is actually a good for the immediate transaction. You can have part of your money stored in Bitcoin, but the alternative to Bitcoin would be real estate, or would be a house, uh, gold, or buy cars, or well, you you could have a car is not a store of value, but you you can have assets, and Bitcoin is just another asset to me as I as I feel it. It's just another asset. We, we in this conversation maybe we think is is better, 
but it's, it's really like a, 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 a portfolio of real estate or something like that. Why would government for, uh, forbid people from owning uh, real estate? I, no, but my, if I go to, my, if my, I go my to a shop... answer on that is it's all about knowledge, uh, Pedro. It's when people are not educated, they make the wrong decisions. That's it. But over time, educated, over time, over time, people will understand it. That is just another asset. They can say, okay, but we cannot pay in shops with uh, like uh, uh, real estate shares. Okay. If I need to go to a shop, I just get euro bills or rent bills or, or dollar bills and then go we pay. Um, frankly, I, I, think, I, I think as soon as people start separating the assets, part in, in the particularly in bitcoin the asset part mm. from the transactional part if i go to a, a coffee shop i have no problem using euros no problem works works fine the, the credit card works fine debit card works works fine dollar bills it euro for, bills it works fine for you as a consumer buying coffee it That's doesn't it. work very well for a merchant who's paying a percentage point to mastercard or visa off of the transaction. No, so I understand. if you could give especially big retailers a way to save one or two percent of the bottom line, they would absolutely go for it. But I, I, I want to challenge that idea that it's just another asset class because to me, Bitcoin isn't just like property or gold. It, it is a currency and it is actually better for payments. Unfortunately, that's part of the, and we're using that word narrative again, that's been hijacked <laughs> and demoted, if you will, um, it, but was the original state intent of bitcoin satoshi nokomoto didn't yes. you know made no bones about it bitcoin was designed to destroy the central banking model mm -hmm. right in the coinbase of the very first bitcoin transaction is a headline from the times newspaper um, yes. in 2009 about in the bailout right? being announced for yeah. banks you know yeah. um so it's unambiguously designed to destroy central banks mm -hmm. and fortunately and unfortunately depending on your perspective they don't understand or believe that. And that's a very good thing. Because if they did, they absolutely would be trying to ban it if they knew what was coming for them. But they have no idea. Mm -hmm. Because they've bought into the same story the rest of the world has bought into. Ah, it's digital gold. Yeah, the nerds were right. There's real value here. But we don't need to worry about this thing because we still have our fiat currencies and they'll That's always it. be there. And we can just make another CBDC. IBM knows That's how it. to sell blockchains. We can just buy a blockchain for IBM. Now we also have one. Zero understanding of what's really going on. Mm -hmm. But you see a world in there which they say, okay, you can own your own Bitcoin. You can store value. It's like a house. It's like anything. It's like land. You keep it. It's like gold. But if you yeah. go to a shop... Swap it to CBDC and, and use this because we are tracking the CBDC and we want to see transactions. Store of value, you don't care about, but use CBDC or use banknotes or or swipe your card when it's yeah. a transaction. I, I see that, I see this outcome as a possibility. I feel it. You're absolutely right, Pedro. It is a it is a possibility. I think it, it it's almost an inevitability in the medium term. Yes. Um, but in the long term, I think the CBDCs lose for the same reason that fiat currencies always die. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look out, if you look throughout history, of course. there hasn't been mm -hmm. a fiat currency who's managed to be a reserve currency for anything longer than I think the record is about 170 years. Like fiat currencies rise and fall because they're governed by bureaucrats who are prone to bad decision making. And because the economics is not a science. I, <laughs> I always laugh when people say they see economics as a science. It's like, mm -hmm. not really. We don't understand this thing. Why don't we have inflation, scientists? If inflation is inevitable when you have issuance past a certain degree, 
why don't we have it now? And the answer, from what I can tell, from the top economists in the world is, oh, because we decided we're not going to. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And I understand it, but it's not scientific. <laughs> Clive, can you play the video? I just sent Clive a video uh, uh, that is uh, was tweeted today. That is on in the 2008 crisis, the 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 Fed arguing that they should have one trillion dollars uh, of of monetary mass. Now it's six trillion, but they are arguing exactly. that one one trillion is maybe enough to face the crisis. Can, can you play it, Clive? Please. <laughs> There's no audio. You are, you are okay. They should shrink or might shrink, or is that something that you don't even want to address? No, I, I, I think we would like to uh, bring the balance sheet back to something uh, consistent with where it was before the crisis, uh, which means enough to accommodate Americans' demand for currency plus a modest amount of reserves in the banking system, and that would suggest something under a trillion dollars. Under a trillion. trillion or less, yes. Okay. <laughs> under a trillion or less and was considered <laughs> huge. In 2008, they are saying to face the crisis, we need to move this up to a trillion or less. Yes. Now it's six. Yeah, it's it's and it's, it's, <laughs> correct me, if, correct my math, but that means that about thirty percent of the dollars now in circulation yeah. were issued in the last year. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, more than twenty-five percent. You're right. Yeah. So <laughs> if it's thirty, twenty, even in twenty-five percent of all dollars in yeah. circulation in history, right? Uh, just coming back to that uh, other point when Pedro was mentioning buying his coffee in euros and and whatnot, you know, being from South Africa. I, I come back from the import industry, right? And we traders. And uh, Bitcoin solves so much more. I mean, you know, paying people overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, uh, in the Bitcoin standard, they explain it like if you need to move uh, whatever, so much gold from one country to the next, you need security, you need insurance. Whereas mm -hmm. in 10 minutes, you'd be able to do it with Bitcoin. Okay, That's true. so yeah. there's so much more that it ticks the box. Uh, the, you know, the evolution of money, right, mm. that Bitcoin has gone through. So it's a collectible, it's, it's reached the stage of store of value. Uh, it hasn't yet. So money has to go through four evolutions, collectible, store of value, medium of exchange, and then unit of account. Okay, uh, unit of account, the last part is when people don't think in fiat and then convert mm -hmm. to uh, Bitcoin, mm. like you're selling a car, you just think interesting. direct in BTC. Okay, yeah. uh, that's the last part. Uh, everyone's at the moment still converting a house or a Ferrari to BTC and saying, oh, mm. we're selling a car for Bitcoin. No, no, they, they, they're still working on the fiat system. Mm. The, the other thing is there's no step for money to be used anywhere in, uh, in history. Okay, It has to be established in history. Now, it's just a matter of time. If Bitcoin's only 10 years old, it, mm. I mean, in 20 years time, people are just everyone's going to know what Bitcoin is. And, and if you offer someone yeah. some Bitcoin for a payment, they're not going to refuse in 10 years time because they'll know yeah. what it is. It's just a matter of sometimes waiting. Okay. It's, it's too early. It's like you in 2010 or 2011. <laughs> and then if you met Pedro and I, even two years ago, we don't, don't know much about Bitcoin. No, I would, I would reject it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 got a, I got a WhatsApp when I first started discussing Bitcoin with Pedro. And he's like, oh, crypto, Forex. <laughs> It's a scam, you know, <laughs> but once you start pursuing and you say, no, no, go, go research, go down the rabbit hole. This is the problem with even heads of states. 
I mean, mm-hmm. if we the people on the ground and we on computers and Twitter and whatnot, people running governments, they're so busy in parliament, this, that, they, don't, they never even go and explore Bitcoin for 10 hours. Mm-hmm. That's my Absolutely. opinion, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's why most people don't see it because they haven't spent the time educating mm. themselves. They haven't spent time reading and first principles thinking, saying, forget what I know from the newspapers, which is yeah. always crap. Let me go and be, forget everything and go learn it from the ground up. Once you mm. do that, it's a no-brainer. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's obvious. just we need time for the 7 billion people to realize yes, it. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah and you? by the time mm-hmm. we get to that hyper-Bitcoinization, I don't think that people will be talking about Bitcoin. I think they'll be talking in sets, you know. <laughs> exactly. That, that, that's another thing uh, you just brought up, right, Simon? I, I, I want to stop talking about Bitcoin, like amongst my kids and my families, because we should use the word Satoshis. Because mm. the price of Bitcoin, you know, and they, there are people that feel, oh, it's too high, it's too expensive. They don't mm. understand there's 10 million cents and you can actually own million, Satoshi. Yeah. I mean, 100 million cents and you can own Satoshis. Like yes. if you want to give your daughter some incentive or a child, you can say, I'll give you 10 Satoshis or 100 Satoshis. Yeah. So, And there's a reasonable hypothesis that the, the value of a Satoshi will approach $1 in the not too distant future, which means yeah. that each Bitcoin is then worth $100 million. Which is crazy to think of, but if you told somebody in 2011 that Bitcoin would be yeah. worth, it was actually interesting. I, the Winklevoss twins yeah. in 2013, I think they predicted $40,000 within the next 10 years. And back then we were going, shit, guys, really? Like, but then you unpack the math and you're like, well, of course, it has mm-hmm. to. You know, let me, let if it's going to be even marginally successful, it has to. So, so I don't know if you listen to Raul Paul as well. He's a hedge yes. fund manager. And, and they speak about the Metcalf cycle, the adoption curve, which is in everything. It's in iPhones. It's in anything new that comes yeah. out. Okay, a polarized camera. Adoption starts taking place. And, and the more people have it, the friends see it, family sees it, they all want to have it. You the know network I mean? effect. The network mm. effect. Yeah, that's it. You know, even the, the Winklevoss brothers, when I look at it, okay, I, I, I come from a Muslim background and we believe deep in our faith that uh, everything's meant to be at a certain time. They also learned Bitcoin through meeting someone else, like how you had this conversation. Now, imagine if your life, you didn't meet that person and didn't have that conversation. You might not have discovered Bitcoin for the next five years. Possibly, okay. yeah. Possibly. So the, even the Winklevoss brothers, I'm saying, they, when I watched their interview, <laughs> they, someone else introduced them to Bitcoin. They weren't, you know, like yeah. right there in the first five people, like how you says, uh, uh, you know, Satoshi sending the message to the second mm. person or the third person who's now passed on. I'm saying it's a matter of time. Uh, if you look even in the dynamics of South Africa, okay, uh, there's 60 million people. You look at how many whites, how many Indians, the demographics, mm. okay? If you probably go and break down that Luno accounts, the 2% of South Africans that have it, you'd probably find majority whites then going into Indians and very little blacks. Because the guy sitting in Soweto or Mlazi, he, he, he hasn't come across this yet. That's my opinion, you know? And it's a matter of time that, because it's also, also a language barrier. You know, so books and education is getting translated into other languages. People in Bangladesh would find out about it. People in Vietnam are finding about about it. Uh, let's take South America. It's such a massive population, right? It's the knowledge has to filter through 
too down to the people. That's how I see it. Mm. So in another 10 years, I'm saying. Yeah, um, sure. There's a lot to unpack there. But um, I look, I, I do spend a lot of time speaking to people who, um, you know, aren't, let's say, wealthy. Um, and, um, and I actually find that there's a greater intuitive understanding of why this technology is valuable um, because the everything is, is kind of thought of, especially in poorer communities where I've seen this play out, in terms of necessity. So the first question you think of is, what is this used for? Because, um, you know, socioeconomically, I'm not at a place where I buy things purely for luxury. Everything needs to exist in to my world reason, for a purpose. Have a reason, yeah. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people are introduced to uh, cryptocurrency by a scam in a lot that's of communities yes, around the world. That's another unfortunate thing. And we've seen this in Brazil. We've seen this in India. Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of this in South Africa too, um, where it's the idea is that you take an idea which people understand because they understand stock fells or, or saving clubs or credit yes. unions and you exploit that understanding to promise them that this is a digital version of that and if you give me some of this stuff you'll get a thousand percent back because we are going to share and build this thing together and in fact there, there's some of the bigger <laughs> there's actually one organization i'm thinking of which is very prominent in the crypto scene in south africa that actually came from that background you know just outright scamming people um, and unfortunately still around today but you know it catches up with all of us eventually mm-hmm. um but but beyond that, you see a lot of just practical necessity-driven use cases for cryptocurrencies in a lot of the world. And especially, I think, at the moment in South America, where you are more likely to see an informal kind of sparser shop accept cryptocurrency than you are a big retailer, right? Yes. So in practical use right now in places like Venezuela, I'm going to go to the corner shop, which is run by a family, I'm going to buy bread and other provisions and they're going to accept Bitcoin. <laughs> it's not actually the wealthy that are using this cryptocurrency in right. those parts of the world. So again, this is the stuff that gets me excited is when I think about financial inclusion and when I think about the many people, and this is something that's quite prevalent in South Africa where I live, you know, there are millions of people who are, they refer to them as unbanked in the banking world, yes, yes. which basically means these are the people we don't want as customers because we can't make money from them, you know? And so, if you are unbanked because you live in the rural Transkei, it doesn't mean you're impoverished. People misunderstand what poverty 100%, is. One hundred percent. Yes. If you live in live in rural Transkei, you have a better life than ninety nine percent of the people on the planet. That's the true. weather's better. The air is cleaner. You probably got to see. Environment is more beautiful. <laughs> you are respected. So you are respected by those around you. You're respected. You. you have a lot of people who you love in close proximity. That's it. You know. So I hate this idea that people like that are poor. You don't understand what poor means if yes, you think yes. that that's poor. There are people sitting in mansions in Beverly Hills who are truly miserable. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, what was my point? So, so interesting. <laughs> but no, we were talking you know, about the e- economic. Are, are excluded. Yeah, these people are excluded from from the online economy. They're excluded from the world of finances, if you will, because yes. the traditional banking system doesn't want them as 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 customers. Whereas Bitcoin has no awareness of your socioeconomic standing, the color of your skin, 
where you're from. Bitcoin doesn't care how much money you have, right? If you want a, yes. a Bitcoin wallet, you install it on your phone and you have one. You don't even need a phone. You can have a paper wallet too, or you can memorize some words and now it lives in your head, right? So if you want it, you can have it. And that's why we refer to the Bitcoin network as permissionless. Hmm. I do not need permission to engage with it. There's no gatekeeper who says you're allowed in and you aren't. You can have a bank account, but you can't. If you want it, you can have it. That's fantastic. And, yes. and that is a departure point. And you think about that in terms of financial inclusion means I can live in rural Transkei. I can have the best lifestyle in the world. And with the bit of money that I have, I can also be a venture capitalist and invest in Silicon Valley from, from where I am. Yes. You know? And all I need is like a smartphone and an internet connection and probably not even that depending on how innovative I am. So I really do think that if we look at where the stuff makes the biggest impact, it's not helping big companies preserve their bloated balance sheet. Like, you know, Apple has how much cash at the moment? Mm -hmm. $200 billion. I don't care if they set it on fire or put it in Bitcoin. Like, they've got too much. It's ridiculous. And they run out of a post box in Ireland. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, no, I, I totally like, feel what you say. It's like, yes, yes. If we, if we look at their problems, morally, ethically, mm -hmm. in the bigger picture sense of the word, it goes far beyond capital allocation. So, Capital allocation is kind of boring to me compared to financial inclusion in a lot of the world. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Simon, you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation the word clients. Who are your clients? What do you do for them? Can you explain your uh, Yeah, your so professional we have a business that's grown organically in my network from people who want to invest in this asset class uh, but don't want to deal with the complexity, don't want to store their own private keys, don't want to sign up with exchanges, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have a managed portfolio product for those clients where they, 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 they trust us with their digital asset portfolios and we manage it for them. Uh, it's a private client service. It's not something we go out and advertise. That's just not the nature of our clients. Um, we also have a stablecoin project. So that's an affiliated business where we're developing a RAND stablecoin. Mm -hmm. The reason we're doing this is because we can't believe it doesn't exist already. Yes, there are other RAND stablecoin projects. None of them are trusted. None of them are audited. You know, there's no attestation. They just issue tokens and say they're worth one RAND, but they can't explain why it's worth one RAND. So there's no trusted RAND stablecoin. Um, so we've, we've, designed a, we think, very thoughtful way to address this, a fully attested stablecoin with fully audited reserves um, that people can trust. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's kind of been a side project that, that we've built because we want it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it's starting to, to pick up nine attention. We haven't launched it yet. Uh, there are tokens in circulation, a very small amount, because we won't issue one token unless there's one rand in the bank for it at least. We're actually aiming for like 1.1 as a better ratio. So we actually want to have bigger reserves than, than tokens in circulation. So that's a project I've been enjoying playing around with. Um, and then we have bits and pieces of other businesses that we've invested in, partnered with. We've got one or two JVs. It's, uh, you know, that's kind of the nature of business. It takes on a life of its own. <laughs> and someone that is, is listening and then says, okay, this is interesting. I don't want to deal with exchanges or private keys or security issues. How do they contact you or your project to, to ask you to manage their money? 
Oh, thank you. Um, well, they can go to our website, which is venox.io. So it's V-N-O-X.io. Or they're welcome to uh, find me on Twitter and send me a DM. My DMs are open at Simon Dingle. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, as I said, this... Because it solves a problem. I know it solves a problem. There's a lot of people that say, I hear about this, but... I don't want to to be responsible for managing security, making choices. Yes. It's interesting because, you know, I very much believe that we all should have our own custody and that we should have our own private oh, keys. And that if yeah. it's not your keys, it's not your Bitcoin. Yeah. So it's kind of weird that I run a business that looks after other people's no, no, private no, keys. No, but, but I, I think you, you're catering for a market that is out there because people, over, yes. even uh, I'm not discriminating age, but maybe... P- People in their 60s, 70s, they're not tech savvy to go and get a Trezor yeah. wallet and start exactly. downloading 5 million Rand in a Trezor yeah. wallet. But, you know, we're also not advertising on billboards or, yeah. and people will often say to me, well, why should I trust you? And I say, you shouldn't. You shouldn't trust anyone. You yeah. should verify, yeah. you know, yeah. if you already trust me, fine. <laughs> is, is this uh, more bespoke where each client will? select where they want their funds allocated in different cryptos or is it like a grayscale model where it's just one allocation it's a it's a managed portfolio so it's it's similar to grayscale um where they basically we decide the allocation we have a template for a portfolio that's something that we have an investment committee and a research team that put a lot of time and effort into and so people come to us and go listen i want to invest in this asset class i don't understand it i've got x amount of dollars or rands can I just send it to you guys? And what we do then is we take we that, we, we execute on it, and, and we apply the templates, um, and then we diversify them into the tokens that, that we look after. Mm-hmm. Do you have any opinion on these uh, uh, smart contracts platforms, so Ethereum versus Cardano versus Polkadot versus other things? Oh, yes, I do, sir. <laughs> this is. I think this is what I spend most of my time uh, thinking about at the moment and speaking uh, to. Now, uh, now the conversation so, can start. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I really am uh, just intrigued at what's happening in, in uh, the DeFi space. And in fact, uh, I'm working on a book project with uh, a dear friend of mine, and he's also a shareholder in our business, Stephen Sidley. Um, him and I have a book coming out. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it yet, actually. But... <laughs> But now I am. <laughs> um, that's <laughs> looking at, that's looking beyond Bitcoin and at what's about to happen in terms right. of disruption in the banking space because of DeFi and smart contract platforms. So I was very early into Ethereum, even earlier than I was into Bitcoin because I knew about Ethereum even before it launched. Um, I was running Geth on my laptop from the Frontier release. Yeah. Um, you know, we started buying Ethereum at two cents. Uh, and I've been watching the growth of Web 3.0 platforms and, you know, Ethereum competitors. Mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, it's an entirely different discussion from Bitcoin. I don't think they're the same thing at all. So when people talk about cryptocurrencies, I'm like, okay, which one? Because you're talking about thousands of things that are all very different. You know, yes. Ethereum's use case and departure point was completely different from Bitcoin's, you know? Mm-hmm. Bitcoin was designed to be a peer-to-peer electronic cash. That's not what Ethereum was designed to be. It was designed to be a distributed computing platform, you know, right. a world computer, a general use blockchain, if you will. So completely different things. You can't talk about them as competing against each other. However, it is interesting seeing what Ethereum is becoming, especially with new protocols being introduced. Uh, things Isn't like the IP1559. Yes. Ethereum 2, when will that be launching? Um, it'll be in July. Well, 
EIP-1559 is a completely different thing. That's being introduced in July. Um, once the network is signaling that, uh, you're going to see Ethereum become deflationary in a way I think few people are ready for. <laughs> um, but the full transition to Ethereum 2, uh, to Serenity, that's something which will probably only be complete in the next six to nine months would be my, my best estimation. Totally. And that, of course, you, know, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned, and I'm going to be honest, I don't, uh, explain to me more. You said it's going to be deflationary. Explain that to me. So there are a few things that are changing the supply side on Ethereum fundamentally. Um, at the moment, uh, Ethereum has a finite monthly supply, but an infinite total supply That's over it. time. Um, so it does have a fixed total supply, like but yes, has. and and you you're familiar with the notion of gas, which is the yes, units the that why yeah. that uh, we calculate transaction fees in. Right. These are notoriously high on the Ethereum network for multiple reasons, and one of them is because Ethereum is shifting more volume in, in terms of value than any other blockchain, right? right? So about four times the amount of value that's transferred on on Bitcoin gets transferred on Ethereum, mm -hmm. and it's more information rich as well because of all the smart contract interaction. So. You know, whereas the Bitcoin blockchain, the entire Bitcoin blockchain from 2009 until now is what, I think it's 200 gigabytes there and thereabouts. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. the Ethereum blockchain is already many terabytes because of all the yeah. extra information, information that is stored yeah. uh, inside of it because of, so gas fees are high. And EIP-1559 was designed to address this um, in uh, a number of ways. But essentially, you'll see the supply of Ethereum being reduced as tokens are burned and used to offset gas fees. Um, and that it plays into this transition to proof of stake as well, where Ethereum is no longer mined using proof of work, mm -hmm. which was okay. similar to the way that Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, is, is mined. Yeah. Um, in Ethereum, it was more generic, so you could use a GPU to do the mining, for example, whereas in Bitcoin, the mining is predominantly on ASICs, application-specific yes. integrated circuits that are designed specifically for that purpose. Ethereum is ASIC-resistant, so that you can use different architectures to mine it, but predominantly GPUs. That system is, is transitioning over to proof-of-stake, where you've got a network of validators that replace the miners, they fulfill the same role in that they encrypt blocks of transactions and you know enforce the 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 rules on the network etc um but instead of proving work you prove stake so mm -hmm. you essentially are buying the right to process transactions on the network instead of using compute power to generate a result that proves that you have done the work to process that block of transactions um so that's a fundamental change. A lot of uh, people who are very kind of puritanical, if you will, about proof of work, believe that proof of stake is more exclusionary. What they seem to miss is the exorbitant cost you need to put into hardware if you want to be a Bitcoin miner. Mm -hmm. Like ASIC chips are incredibly expensive at the moment. It's one of the most scarce resources yeah. in the world. So I don't see how they think proof of stake is different because you're still having to pay a lot of money for the right to process transactions. The difference with 
well, it's not actually different. You can you get involved incrementally by joining mining pools in Bitcoin in the same way that you can, you know, you can get involved incrementally in joining a, a proof of stake validation pool in Ethereum. I have one um, question about that. But what it means is that a lot of, a lot of um, tokens on Ethereum become staked. So they become locked up in these validators, right? So each validator has 32 ETH locked inside of it um, and that's the requirement to to buy that you know validator and 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 then you know you earn a return from transaction fees on the ethereum that's staked there but it means that a vast uh, you know quantity of the ethereum in the system is locked up almost Into in contracts, perpetuity yeah. you know yeah the liquidity so the, can be withdrawn later, but the Ethereum two that's coming out. If if you mm. owned one Ethereum on Luno, would it just naturally move to ETH two? Yes. So the way happens? that it's been designed architecturally is is kind of incredible. Um, <clears throat> you essentially have the Ethereum two network, which is operating on proof of stake. Validators are being added all the time. You have shards and rollups and all sorts of other concepts being docked onto Ethereum two. And what will happen for the full transition is the original Ethereum 1 mainnet will dock onto Ethereum 2 along with everything yeah. else in the network. And once that transition is complete, you'll be able to transfer tokens from Ethereum. Well, they'll all be Ethereum tokens. They'll all be pretty It'll just much naturally convert. convert. Yeah. Okay. So you won't have to do anything as a You don't have to. Yes, yes, yes. So, and that brings me back to the question, you know, in your fund or your allocation, like a lot of people put it out there, half their portfolios in Bitcoin, 20% in Ethereum. How do you see this? Uh, do you feel more bullish on Ethereum? You're more confident on, on that as growth? I still think the correct distribution between Bitcoin and Ethereum is roughly 50-50. <laughs> I think they, they will both be successful for very different reasons. However, when I look at what's happening in DeFi and the amount of value being created and transferred on Ethereum, and I say this as somebody who tends towards Bitcoin maximalism, like I really am part of the Bitcoin faithful, but there's a thousand times more things being built and value created on, on I see right it as now. well. I see more than 200 other applications being built onto Ethereum. Am I right? Yeah. But then let's look at it just fundamentally, right? The market cap of Bitcoin is currently, uh, help me out. Just under a trillion dollars. Yeah. Just under just a trillion under dollars, a trillion right? Fell, yeah. yeah. Whereas Ethereum's, if I remember correctly, is like 25% of that. Mm. <laughs> you know, There's absolutely no reason to me why the market cap of Ethereum shouldn't be the same as the market cap for Bitcoin, <laughs> if not okay. four times larger, which is <laughs> a perfectly Great. sound argument as well. Is that how so you see So you're looking for growth prospects? Yeah. I think Ethereum is going to grow in a way that will go down in the history books. It's like, you know, the word parabolic will mean nothing compared to what's going to happen in Ethereum if this bull market continues. Yeah. So I think it's a successful project. And is, is it robust to, to compete with these other new emerging uh, projects like uh, Cardano, Polkadot and others? What do you... Yeah. So it's interesting to think about because, of course, the scaling issues that plague Ethereum and how long it has taken to solve them um, have created an opportunity for Solana, Cardano, BSC, you know, competing chains. I don't think that ultimately they'll succeed. I think that Ethereum 2 will change the game fundamentally. Yeah. 
I also think that there's some physical laws at play here that people don't appreciate. The reason transactions are so fast and free on, on you know, and cheap on these other networks is because nothing's happening on them. Okay. There's no traffic. You know, yeah. it's very easy to create fast and cheap transactions in a network where there's only two people using it. So, you know, I'm not saying that these these blockchains aren't more efficient. They absolutely are more efficient. They might be 50 times or 100 times more efficient. But I think Ethereum 2 will A, be at least as efficient as its primary competitors and B, bring a development community with it that these other guys just don't have. I mean, let's be honest, nobody's building anything on Cardano. There are a lot of projects on Solana, but my primary concern with Solana is how centralized it is. It's hyper-centralized. Um, so, you know, as somebody who believes in what we're trying to achieve in the broader sense and the yeah. big picture, I'm not interested in building on Solana. It's too centralized. Same for BSC. So, the... The other chains that I find more interesting than Solana or Cardano, not from a technological perspective again, but from a, a practical application perspective are Tezos, for example, because I think it's interesting how financial institutions are naturally flocking towards Tezos. I also love the baking model. It was the first big proof of stake blockchain that really established that this was you know, a viable solution. So I think that Tezos is, is interesting from a purely computer science perspective, if nothing else. But it is it is quite telling that, you know, we're seeing Society General and, and other big financial institutions really starting to build on, on Tezos. So Tezos interests me. Flow is very interesting to me because I it's the CryptoKitties team. It's the most successful NFT project in the first phase that designed this blockchain because they couldn't deal with scaling issues on Ethereum anymore. Um, what's really interesting about Flow is how they've signed um, big sports franchises, the NBA, NFL, mm -hmm. you know, MotoGP. Soon they're going to launch UFC NFTs built on the Flow blockchain. So technologically, Flow is interesting, but technologically, they're all interesting. Um, Flow is slightly more centralized than Ethereum, but probably less so, I'd argue, than Solana and Cardano. Um, and, and then it's just more, more real-world adoption. You know, if the NBA is selling their NFT on this blockchain, it's probably not going away anytime soon. Um, and there are, there are others. But, I, you know, I also don't see this as a zero-sum game. I, um, of course. I believe that there's space mm -hmm. for, for probably not thousands, but, but for a handful of, of these chains to survive and compete. And I think they'll be interoperable in time. Polkadot's another interesting one to me that I think uh, has solved a lot of interesting problems, especially around governance. Um, so, you know, we could spend all day talking about individual pro projects, mm -hmm. but I certainly haven't seen anything I would call an Ethereum killer yet. Okay. You, these, these upgrades to the Ethereum uh, network, uh, are they uh, approved or accepted by the miners community? What I'm asking is, coming July, they will implement it or is, is it like a big fight with possibilities of forks or not? I don't think that there'll be any significant forking. Um, EIP-1559 is considered controversial by some, but really the worst criticism of it is that it doesn't fully achieve its stated goals. I think that the, I, I don't think there'll be any severe resistance to it, to be honest. Um, as for the shift to Ethereum 2, I don't think it matters where you fall <laughs> in terms of your philosophy on protocols, etc., 
the entire community wants Ethereum 2 to succeed because gas fees are just untenable at the okay. moment. Um, so I, I, I think everybody is 100% behind the move to proof of stake. And if they aren't, then they aren't on Ethereum. They're probably Bitcoin maximalists. <laughs> <laughs> just coming back to, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum um, uh, price movement. Is there any specific, um, which, are they attached by any chance? Like when Bitcoin comes down, Ethereum comes down, Bitcoin moves up. Or do, do you feel now Ethereum too would run its own course? I think it will in time, but they, they definitely are not decoupled at the moment. You know, Bitcoin sneezes and the entire crypto market yes. catches a cold. It's it's hmm. just the way it is. Um, That's what we've noticed, yeah. Yeah, and it's also, it's it's kind of obvious too. If you've got value in Bitcoin, when times are good, you start diversifying and That's exactly. you know, instead of taking profit, you go and take risk into some coins that look interesting 100%. that might be competitors, unless you're a maximalist, of course, mm -hmm. in which case you're probably buying more. <laughs> a, a, a quick um, question on your opinion on Ripple and and other st uh, stuff like that, Ripple. Yeah, uh, it, Ripple's never been particularly interesting for me. It was for a few minutes in the beginning. Um, I, I met and, and enjoyed the company of some of the Ripple founders. Um, I was one of the first thousand people on the network. So I was part of the original Ripple airdrop. I got a few thousand Ripple just for being there. Uh, I sold it pretty quickly, though, after Jad left to start Stellar. Litecoin? Um, Litecoin is is interesting. I, I've heard somebody compare it. Uh, it's like silver to Bitcoin's gold, <laughs> which is a fun comparison. To me, Litecoin is an invaluable test net for Bitcoin. You know, we get to test new ideas on Litecoin before we introduce them to Bitcoin. Is so it just because of the speed? Is it just... Bitcoin it's because the code is very similar, so it's good to test. And if it exactly. fails, fails on a, on a lesser value network, let's say. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, like, like you know, Litecoin serves a, a purpose, I think. And Charlie Lee has has always been a, a very valuable member of the community. Uh, he's an interesting uh, guy. Do I ultimately I, I, think I like that we need yeah. Litecoin. No, but it's it's a cool project. Whereas XRP is an interesting cool, and we don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> can we can we now move on to an, uh, another topic called the metaverse and this whole uh, what you call it decentral land and virtual space and gaming? You, I don't know much about gaming. I know Pedro's son knows a lot about gaming. So <laughs> can you take us there? And, and I like to play Battlefield. No, don't don't, do don't, ex don't exclude me totally. <laughs> <laughs> what what is the most common game out there? Is it Fortnite? Um, it depends on on if you look at number of players. I remember it was actually amazing seeing Valheim come from nowhere and like top of the, the Steam charts for a while. I think in terms of Twitch streams at the moment, at the time of recording, um, there's an overwhelming amount of streams for World of Warcraft, um, Burning Crusade, Classic. Um, it's kind of interesting seeing... The reinvention, not even reinvention, just basically re-release of a game that was made 14 years ago. <laughs> Get so right. much attention. What's your favorite cool. game? Mine. You, yeah. My guilty pleasure, which I never talk about, is rated battlegrounds in World of Warcraft retail. Um, <laughs> I a hyper competitive rated battleground okay. player. <laughs> right, battleground. Okay. And and does that have its own tokens or crypto or anything no. on there or well, skins? Well, there's, there's, 
there's World of Warcraft Gold, which okay. is a fascinating economy in and of itself. Um, but to bring it back to crypto, it's quite interesting that um, Vitalik Buterin, who's the you know yes. one of the founders of Ethereum, Ethereum yeah. he often talks about how it was World of Warcraft that introduced him to the nightmares of centralization, because you know he had a character that had an ability in an early version of the game. And Blizzard, which is the company that makes World of Warcraft, they upgraded it and changed the ability of this character. Uh, and he, he hated them for it. And yeah, it's like, there's right. nothing I can do about it. And so, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the ideas, and this is part of the thinking behind NFTs, of having equipment, spells, things that you own in a video game that are immutable. They can't be changed except by consensus. Um and so a lot of people envision a future in which, for example, your character in, in, in a game could have a sword and that sword could be transferred into another game. So you could have a character in another game universe that has the I, same I see, sword. Or- I, I see this happening now where the games, the ownership would come onto tokenization so that that yeah. uh, sword would belong to you and your wallet, let's say your yes. wallet, right? And then you go and play another game, just say Fortnite. You yeah. basically can bring that item or just say a car you bought, you've played exactly. Need for Speed for ten years, and you've now gone from a Fiat to a Ferrari. You've painted it, you've added turbos, but you can bring it to another game, because. Yes. Uh, and I think in a virtual world, people want to show off their possessions. Uh, you know, I was watching the video of the guy who bought the sixty-three million dollars worth of NFTs, and mm. what he said is that when you go to the Mona Lisa in, in, and look at it, you can't touch it. They're saying, do not touch. Mm. So what are you doing? You're just looking at it. But mm. you fly all the way to Paris to go look at it yeah. because, uh, you know, that's the original one. So yes. he feels owning the original pixels of the art, and he's actually mm. trying to create a virtual museum now where people can virtually go in and look at mm. each art piece and whatnot. Yeah. And... Uh, I think we're coming to a time where the gaming world, VR, virtual reality, crypto, uh, everything's starting to find a merge. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's only just beginning. I mean, there's so many interesting things happening with NFTs and so much creativity that's coming out of that space. Um, You know, using NFTs as physical access as well. So tickets to an event. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. I think the most famous example to date is the Kings of Leon um, NFT where they sold their album as an NFT. But uh, what a lot of people miss about that is you weren't actually just buying the music. Um, if you have that NFT in your Ethereum wallet, when you go to a Kings of Leon show, you can scan the QR code of your Ethereum wallet and that'll give you access to the golden circle if you hold that NFT. Wow. You know? Amazing. So um, it's... you and, and there's so many problems to solve. Ticketing is one of them. You know, Tickets get, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> fraud. Um, fraud. Fraud all the time. Fraud. Yeah. yeah it happened to problem. me at a soccer game in London. <laughs> yeah. Whereas there's no way to forge an NFT. You either have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And the system knows this NFT has come through the gate or it hasn't. Like mm-hmm. it solves such a big problem. In the ownership of art, you know, the art world has a big problem with, with accurately recording a yes. history of ownership. There's so much fraud in that space. Um, you know, there's so much fake art. And then there's this horrible practice of investing in art that's that's vaulted in free ports adjacent to airports to avoid tax. And it's not even hanging on a wall. It's just yeah. it's literally in a steel container. Mm. Nobody ever sees it. It's just, you know, locked away. 
like, and this is what blows my mind is people are okay with that. You know, mm. they're okay with the fact that the US dollar is literally backed by oil and blood is like mm. the ultimate fossil fuel currency, mm. but they complain that we need to use some electricity to make NFTs and Bitcoin. Wow. It blows my mind yes, yes. how stupid people are in that discussion. It's just knowledge. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw this, did, did you, what, what you're saying about these warehouses full of heart. I saw that, the, I, I think it's in Switzerland or whatever, these companies that is really massive warehouses full of uh, works of art so that the owners, because they don't really have possession, they have a contract that has, gives them access, they cannot claim that they have it so that it can be uh, frozen by courts and stuff like that. It's a way of bypassing... Uh, fiscal laws and and um, yeah yeah. I mean, can you imagine going back in history and explaining to Van to Gogh the, what yeah, his art yeah. was being used for in the future? He's in a he black leave. box in the middle of nowhere. You know, <laughs> it's weird. It's, it's really weird. Pedro, <laughs> yeah. did you watch the video of the young Indian guy who bought the art for thirty-three million dollars, uh, sixty-three million? I saw it. From, I saw it. Yes, uh, right. So, in one of the interviews I watched, I watched a few. They asked him. He does. Uh, what does he own? So he doesn't even own his own property or his car, mm. a car or anything, but yet he's worth millions or if not billions uh, in crypto. Okay, and his thing, and I see this happening maybe in the next ten, even from now, 10, 10 years time. People want to be nomads as such. They want to jump on a plane, go live one month in Bali. Jump on a plane, go live one month in Philippines. Go maybe to Greece. So all their possessions, like as you said. Why have ownership of art when it's no one can view it? Why have ownership of a car when you can't drive it everywhere? So mm. being in the virtual world, people would have this boasting rights, what they call it, or bragging rights, right? They'd be able to show you what they own in the virtual world. And, and, and that's exactly what he's got. He's got an art collection worth $63 million now. Yeah. And in fact, he's unifying. Worse to him. Worse to him. <laughs> Right. <laughs> in that particular case, I think he's worse to him for now. Until he sell it <laughs> to another person that pays the same. Then no, we can say it's worse for I, two. I, then if he sells again, it's worse for three. <laughs> where I'm saying pe people would want to move around with their phone, move around anywhere in the physical world, maybe go to Transkai, go sit on a farm in Transkai, but in the virtual world, you have your assets, basically your assets that are secured, you know, your passwords, you know, they're secured. Whereas, Simon, you know, there's so many Ponzi schemes and scams in South Africa. Uh, one day you yeah. think you got the money and next day you actually don't own anything. Okay. So uh, this way people probably own assets in the virtual world and sleep easier at night and can travel the world more peacefully and not be tied down to one taxation law or one your yeah, country. I mean, it, you know, a lot of it boils down to 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 living decisions. I I went through a period of my life where I came as close to digital nomadcy as I can, uh, where I was, you know, part of a team building a product in London, and you know, kind of spending my time between Cape Town, London, sometimes Europe, Johannesburg, and literally my life was in two bags. But you know, I've also got two children who live in South Africa, yeah. so I would make sure I was coming back constantly so that I could see them. But you know, I, I have uh, I have friends who are young, single, very successful in the in the crypto space, and literally, <coughs> as you said, own nothing, own yeah. nothing, 
and 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 these are guys in in one example I'm thinking of who are worth a lot of money like they've they've built significant value in the in the DeFi space um and uh live out of a backpack essentially don't own a car don't own a house um their money's on the blockchain um, so they you know, buy out their 24 word cards. password in their head and they can walk through the airport <laughs> security with a couple million in their head and it's a you know it's a beautiful world until covid strikes and then you get stuck in a flat somewhere yeah. <laughs> no true true I find that yeah, fascinating, that's, that freedom. I find it fascinating. We discuss this a lot of times. I, I say to Mohammed this a lot of times. I find these kind of models, alternative models of life, fascinating. That we don't have to fit all in the same. Have a house, have two cars, have a company, have an office. Uh, yeah. It's freedom. I find it when people start to think that, you know, I have a treasure wallet and I have a watch and, and, and it's enough. It's... Uh, it's 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 everything in the cloud. It's it's, it's liberating. Not not necessarily everything. I don't. I'm not strategizing so far. But uh, I always give the, this example: some guy that can have like some some treasure wallet or whatever, and can have, for example, a painting, and say, "All I carry mm. through all the world is this painting." And my my Bitcoin or my Ethereum or whatever, and I arrive in Bali, I put the painting on the wall, and I start again. Some this kind of alternative uh, lifestyles, I find it I find it fascinating because it's something that was very tough to do, even fifty years ago. Fifty years ago was yeah. almost impossible to do this. It's Fantastic, and uh, <laughs> I think that really is the um, that's. That's what I love about this space. There's so much opportunity. There's so much hope. Um, there's so much scope for us reimagining everything yes. from the way we live to how we interact to how we build fairer systems to how we include more of humanity in, in the various things that we're doing. It's just, uh, you know, uh, the Bitcoin maximalists have a bad name for toxicity online, and et cetera. But yeah. one of the things I like is, is uh, you know, Michael Saylor, who obviously now is famous for <laughs> being CEO of MicroStrategy and, and buying billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, is he bought the domain hope.com. Mm. And, uh, you know, he's using that to spread this idea that Bitcoin is hope. And I really, I really think that's a beautiful way of looking at beautiful. it. You know, it's mm. if you want to live out of a backpack, fine. You know, or if you want to move your family into a rural area and run your life from there, cool. Um, you know, you don't need permission anymore. You these these ways of life, these ways of being, are now open to us. Um, and all of that comes back to distribution. It comes back to free and open thinking, open source software, your wine life. open monetary systems. You know, that's that's what it's about. Decentralized living, I think. Yes. Yeah, Pedro. Uh, can we wrap up for today? It was a fantastic, I really have to say it was a fantastic talk. I really enjoyed meeting you, Simon. And uh, was, uh, I always say, as, as, as long as uh, this audience of me and Mohammed, these two are happy with the talk, you know, the others enjoy. <laughs> but I, 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 I like the feeling at the end of the talk of was a really good talk. Yeah. yeah. Thank Simon. you very much. It's Great to meet you guys too. And I think you're going to be seeing a lot more digital nomads in, Pedro, in uh, your country, Pedro, because of course, Portugal has now yes. said that they won't be charging taxes on, yeah, it's uh, tax -free. on crypto earnings. So <laughs> I think we'll have free. to move there, Simon. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> what, just, just on that note, what do you think South African governments take on it, on, on crypto long term? 
the, the South African government has been incredibly supportive and, and has appreciated the innovation. There's been a working group that was read by, led by the South African Reserve Bank that I think did a very good job of understanding the landscape and the use cases for crypto. What we don't have yet is any real regulation. I think that'll come eventually. Um, but I do think there's an appreciation from our regulators that it's not going away. It's part of yes, the system. They can't avoid um, it. And as part of, you know, from a tax perspective, SARS is considering it just as any other asset. So they expect you to pay income tax. Unlike Portugal, they will apply capital gains tax to um, disposing right. of the assets. There was a news story that broke this morning that you might have seen that SARS is now asking the big exchanges, Luna and Vela in particular, um, to disclose information about client cryptocurrency holdings. So I think if, you, if you've been trying to evade tax using cryptocurrency, your life is about to get more interesting in South Africa. <laughs> um, but, you know, as you said earlier, South Africa still features in Google searches as the number one country in the world where people are searching for Bitcoin, trying to understand it. Our local exchanges volumes suggest that, you know, real world trading and usage of cryptocurrency in South Africa is, you know, probably in the top 10, if not the top five in the world um, per capita. So it's, uh, uh, and, then, and then there's a lot of, you know, South Africans who are contributing a lot to the space. Stephen Young, who created Niftify, which has collateralized loans against NFTs, South African. Andre Cronier, of course, uh, who developed Yearn, or some people say why Yearn, he says Yearn. Um, it's a DeFi protocol that's just absolutely magnificent. South African, the Dela Riviere twins who were, pioneers in the early days of nfts uh gavin marshall who's contributed a lot to um you know the bitcoin space and the list goes on and on and on Lorian Gamarov, timothy stranix there are so many south africans involved in crypto and and at the very top level of crypto so it's uh it's the underappreciated crypto capital of the world to some <laughs> okay so would you say maybe the bit uh, there's a blockchain conference that happens once a year is that the, uh, a good hub or conference or is there any particular conference or hub where crypto I'm gets I'm not discussed? a big conference fan I'll be honest like yeah. uh, just same you know, here <laughs> just all of the content available online you yes. go for the networking if you can go <laughs> rather invite them to your podcast and have a one-on-one -on -one discussion <laughs> yeah. but huh? uh, but uh, you know they, so there's blockchain Africa which is probably the biggest one in South Africa um, it usually takes on more of a kind of a corporate bend, but okay, uh, okay. you know, it, it's good depending on what you're looking for. Of course, the big global one is Consensus, which is underway at the moment uh, in Miami, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, there there are a lot of good events, and, and the nice thing about the modern world is that everything is streamed now and everything's available online, so you don't necessarily have to get on an airplane. Hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. Simon, thank so, you so much. There's so much. many. Oh, it's yeah. a pleasure. Carry on, carry I was just going to say, yeah. there's so many good good resources online for people who want to learn more. Um, you've mentioned Seyfedin Amos's book, The Bitcoin yes. Standard. I wrote a book called In Math We Trust, much yes. shorter, very easy to read in an afternoon. Um, which is it available on, on Amazon? Is, is it available on Amazon? Yes, yes it it's is. on Amazon yeah. for yeah. Kindle. Um, and then uh, I check out hope.com, their links to... A lot of great resources, in, including resources from Jamison Lopp, um, who's an engineer and computer scientist who's been working in the space for ages. He's just got a great collection of resources on his website. So lots of great places to go and learn. Okay. And then your yes, new book of yours is coming out. Do you have a title of it already? 
Uh, a working title, I, okay. but I've probably already said more than I'm allowed to. About okay. the no. <laughs> well, we'll have to bring you back on to launch that book. With pleasure. Simon, it's been really great. And thank you so much for accepting our invite. We know how busy you are. And no, thanks uh, for having me. So interesting. I think, Pedro, I can speak on behalf of both of, of us. We really learned a lot from you today. More insight into everything. And we're here just to increase our knowledge. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mohammed. Thank you, Pedro. Hope to have you again in the future on our podcast. Uh, it, was a, it was a fantastic discussion. Greatly enjoyed it. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks. Keep well.